You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Thank you. Hi. Uh, Chapter 3 of Daniel will be the reading today behind me and in your Bibles. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and and set it upon the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sounds of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, As soon as they heard the sounds of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations of people of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, "'May the king live forever.' Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But here, but there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, If you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other cloth, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. 
The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisers, weren't there three men that were tied up and thrown into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the burning furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego came out of the fire and the satraps, prefects, governors and royal advisers crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed, their robes not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who says anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no, go no other God can save in that way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the province of Babylon. slide this back a little. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, if, you, if I haven't met you before, my name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here at Darabin Prezi. It's a real joy to be a pastor here. Uh, a couple of quick uh, announcements before I get started. Uh, the first is we've got a, uh, a friend of mine and a great partner in the gospel, uh, Ben Farlett's visiting today. Uh, he probably wouldn't like me to mention that he's here. But uh, if you want to know anything about ministry apprenticeships, a great way to test your gifts and train for gospel ministry, uh, then Ben happens to be uh, the kind of national director of the ministry training strategy. Uh, and so it'd be great. Ben, I think you're sitting over here. Is that right? Give us a wave. Yeah, so if you can see Ben over there, uh, catch up with Ben after church and, and chat all things ministry apprenticeships. Uh, so it, it's great to have Ben with us. Uh, the other thing is, hopefully regulars here at DPC uh, got an email from me. I'm starting some long service leave uh, in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, and I sent an email out to our kind of regular email list yesterday. Uh, so please have a read of that. And if you'd like to chat with me about anything uh, to do with my long service leave or anything else, frankly, in the next two or three weeks before I have some long service leave, then please get in touch. I'd love to talk. Anyway, please have Daniel chapter 3 open. Uh, an outline of my sermon is on the welcome card that Stu mentioned. That's kind of via the Sundays tab on our church website. So you can chase that up. But uh, let's ask for God's help. We need his help. Our gracious Father, uh, please, uh, please, Father, give me the grace to speak your word uh, faithfully and clearly uh, and in a way that uh, makes much of our Lord Jesus and his uh, great deliverance. Uh, we pray for each one here uh, that uh, we would all listen to your word with real humility, uh, be ready to receive it, uh, to trust it, to delight in it and to be changed by it. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, on the uh, 7th of February 2009, 
I can honestly say that I felt that I was delivered from a fiery furnace. It's a pretty dramatic start, isn't it? But uh, on the 7th of February 2009, if you don't know, uh, that was the day that's come to be known as Black Saturday. Uh, and uh, uh, myself and Gabby and a bunch of others here from DPC uh, were away on the Bandura Presbyterian Church camp, which happened to be in Marysville. Uh, we're under the wonderful leadership of one and only Adam Humphreys, who's now on the staff here, but he was leading at that time the, the camp of Bandura Presby Church. Uh, as you might remember, if you remember Black Saturday, it was a stinking hot day in Victoria, kind of raging northerly wind in the Saturday afternoon free time. Uh, it was probably about 43 degrees, and we thought, let's go to the Marysville public swimming pool, or at least a lot of us went there. Uh, so I remember swimming around in the swimming pool, having a great time. Uh, but I did look up on the surrounding hills, and there were some ominous smoky clouds building. I thought, oh, that doesn't doesn't look great, but, you know, I didn't think much of it, went back to in the pool. Little did we know, within an hour, we had an emergency evacuation from that campsite. Adam did a wonderful job kind of mobilising all of us to get out of there really quickly. Uh, we spent the night on, sleeping on the floor of a church hall up in Alexandra. And as we walked around later that evening, we started to hear reports filtering through. Not only had the campsite that we were due to sleep in that night had been completely burnt to the ground, but all of Marysville was gone, completely blown away by the fire. And it took a little while to sink in, but to different degrees, we all felt like we'd been delivered from a fiery furnace. It was pretty full on. Well, as you've just heard read from Christina, Daniel chapter 3 is also about a wonderful, miraculous delivery from a fiery furnace. A delivery not from the fiery furnace of a bushfire, but the fiery furnace of judgment, Nebuchadnezzar's judgment. And we see in Daniel chapter 3 that God delivers his people from the fiery furnace of judgment by sending a heavenly deliverer so we should worship him alone. That's my summary of Daniel chapter 3. God delivers his people from the fiery furnace of judgment by sending a heavenly deliverer so we should worship him alone. So please have Daniel chapter 3 open. Uh, we're going to start in verses 1 to 7 where we see that King Nebuchadnezzar uh, sets up this massive image on the plain and he commands everyone in Babylon to worship it. Uh, so take, take a look at verse 1. And we see there King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. And if you've got a footnote in your Bible, you, you might see uh, roughly what a cubit was. 60 cubits high is some 27 metres high. That's about a kind of eight or nine storey building. This is not a small statue, it's a massive statue, roughly three metres wide. And Nebuchadnezzar sets up uh, this uh, image, this massive idol or statue on the plain, we're told, of Dura uh, in the province of Babylon. So put this in context, remember at the end of Daniel chapter 2, you can flick back to the very end of Daniel 2 if you like, uh, but there, what did we see? We saw the proud and arrogant Nebuchadnezzar fall prostrate before Daniel. He fell to the ground in humility and service, he made himself low, and he lifted up Daniel and his friends and his God, Daniel's God. He lifted them up in praise. And yet here, just a short time later, Nebuchadnezzar's lifting himself up. I say he's lifting himself up, but because uh, even though this image isn't explicitly of Nebuchadnezzar himself, you know, it's not a giant kind of statue of Nebuchadnezzar, 
uh, it does kind of link back to the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had in chapter 2. You remember Nebuchadnezzar had that dream of a massive statue and the gold head of the statue, Daniel said, represented the power and glory of his own kingdom. So it seems that that image is stuck in Nebuchadnezzar's mind and he's thought, you know what I should do? I should build this massive monument, this massive image out on the plain uh, as a kind of, um, uh, I guess, an embodiment, a monument to the power and glory of my own kingdom. Uh, and then I'm going to demand that everyone bow down and worship it. And now, of course, this isn't the first time, uh, it's not the first time that this has been done on a plain in Babylon. You could write down Genesis chapter 11, you could read Genesis chapter 11 later on. But as sinful kind of humanity spirals out of control, what do they do? They band together and they build a tower reaching to the heavens in Genesis chapter 11. The aim of building this tower, we're told, is to make a name for themselves. And they're not interested in bringing glory to God. They want to bring glory to themselves. They're not interested in making God look good, primarily. They want to make themselves look good. This is the heart of sinful human beings, turned in on ourselves, kind of obsessed with our own pride and glory. And that's embodied in a really ugly way in Nebuchadnezzar, as he builds this statue on the plain, just like the Tower of Babel, a statue that is a monument to his own pride and glory. And of course, the fact that we're told it's a massive image... Uh, you might remember uh, that that, go, that might remind you uh, of the second of the Ten Commandments. I mean, God gave his people Ten Commandments after he'd uh, redeemed them from Egypt. Uh, and the second of those Ten Commandments says this. It says, you shall not make or worship any image or idol. So what we believe as Christians is that the God of heaven and earth made each and every one of us in his image. So we're not to make him in our image. That's not on. Right? The only worship that is acceptable to our creator God is to worship the invisible God as he has revealed himself by speaking in his word. So we worship him in accordance with what he has said and not in accordance with some image that we've made about him. So the, the, the Jewish people who are in Babylon, they were exiles, kind of refugees in Babylon, they knew about this command. So imagine how much pressure they felt under when Nebuchadnezzar built this massive statue and, and commanded, as he's going to do in a couple of verses, and commanded them to worship it. Or take a look in verse 2. Nebuchadnezzar uh, summons all these leaders of Babylon... I'm not going to read all of them, but there's some pretty funky names. I wouldn't mind knowing exactly what a satrap was uh, or being one. But anyway, uh, so Nebuchadnezzar summons all the leadership of Babylon. Uh, and you see at the end there, he says, summons them to come to the dedication of the image that he had set up. Notice again, he's lifted up this image. He's set up this image. Yeah, so this is the kind of grand public opening of Nebuchadnezzar's image. He wants the who's who of Babylonian leadership to be there. He doesn't want anyone to miss out on this grand occasion. So in verse 3, uh, we see that these leaders assemble together on the plain and you can all, that we're told that they stand before Nebuchadnezzar's image. You can almost picture them kind of dwarfed by the image, looking up at it in just kind of like 
what has Nebuchadnezzar done? You know, building this massive image. Nebuchadnezzar has a herald, verse 4, someone who comes out and proclaims the decree of the king. Notice verse 4, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. Right, that, this is a command, it's not just a you know, suggestion, if you'd like to do it, I've invented this new type of worship, participate if you like. It's a non-negotiable command coming from the most powerful ruler on earth. Right, Nebuchadnezzar was head of the superpower of his day. Think President of the United States, but multiplied by a lot. And the command is, verse 5, as soon as you hear the music from this wide array of musical instruments, what must you do? You must fall down and worship the image of gold uh, that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Notice that again. There's this emphasis on Nebuchadnezzar setting up, lifting up this image. And you might think, well, that's fine for Nebuchadnezzar to make that command, but is it going to be kind of uh, all threat but no follow-through? Well, not so much. Verse 6, he's going to be ruthless if you don't worship the command. Uh, you don't worship the command, you've got to obey the command. Whoever doesn't fall down and worship, uh, we're told, will be immediately thrown into a blazing furnace. So in verse 7, it's kind of like Nebuchadnezzar knows he's got a bit of a captive audience, you know, he's assembled this crowd. He wants to do a test run to see if they take him seriously. So he says, got to strike up the band, get the zithers going. Uh, and immediately, almost all of the crowd falls down and worships the image that he set up. Almost all of the crowd. Because in verses 8 to 12, we, we see that three Jewish men, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, they refuse to worship the image. Take a look, take a look in verse 8. All the, uh, at this time, uh, some astrologers came forward uh, and denounced the Jews. I remember these astrologers, they're among the wise men of Babylon, we heard about them last week. Uh, they're, they're, for the most part, a bit like people who study astrology or horoscopes today. Right? They think that you just might be able to determine someone's destiny by looking at the movements of the stars. That's what these guys believe. They were astrologers uh, and they had eagle eyes on this crowd. They saw that when everyone else fell down and bowed down and worshipped Nebuchadnezzar's image, three people remained standing, three Jewish men. And you get the sense that they really don't like the Jewish people. And we're told here that they denounced the Jews. And that were denounced, it's a little bit like, uh, it's a kind of literally is that they uh, ate them up with their words. It's maybe a bit like we might say uh, someone chewed someone else out. You know, it's kind of dobbing someone in with malicious attempt, intent to harm them. And that's what this idea, of they denounced the Jews. And so they remind King Nebuchadnezzar, hey, this is the command you made, this is the penalty for breaking the command. And then in verse 12, they say, but there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. Are they neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up? Let us that again. So notice again these astrologers, uh, they mention quite specifically that these men are Jewish men. 
It seems that they developed a, a real hostility and resentment for the Jewish people that were living amongst them in Babylon. This minority group just wouldn't assimilate properly. Their religious beliefs and practices just weren't compatible with the way we do things in Babylon. And so they wanted to get rid of them. They had an eagle eye for any disobedience on behalf of the Jews. And to make matters worse, these three men aren't just any Jews, are they? These are Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, you remember from Daniel chapter 1, they're graduates of the University of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar's invested three years of solid training in Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, and then we're told here in verse 12 that he's appointed them to kind of be part of his government to oversee particular provinces in in, in the area, in the kind of empire of Babylon. So their act of refusing to worship Nebuchadnezzar's image isn't just like us making a personal private choice or about our spirituality. Their act is an act of treason. It's someone in the government going against the head of the government. The astrologers are clear These three Jewish men deserve to be thrown in the furnace. So what happens? In verses 13 to 15, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego are summoned into Nebuchadnezzar's presence and maybe surprisingly, they're given a final chance to save their lives. Take a look in verse 13. They're summoned before the king and he really, in our house, we might say, he's flipped his lid you know, like he, he's furious with rage. He's really kind of losing control. You know, when someone's so angry uh, that kind of their capacity for rational thought uh, has kind of shut down the frontal lobe. Uh, and so that's Nebuchadnezzar. He's furious with rage. So in verse 14, uh, the king says, is it true? Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, uh, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I have set up? You can hear Nebuchadnezzar's not exactly accustomed to people refusing to obey his commands. He's got an awful lot of power. If he says jump, typically people say, how high? He's not used to kind of three kind of Jewish refugees standing up to him, presuming to disobey his command. Is it true, he says? But then in verse 15... He decides to give them a second chance. He says, well, 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 why don't you try again now? You know, he reminds them of the command. And he says, hey, if you fall down and worship now, very good. Let's forget about it. Why is Nebuchadnezzar seemingly a little bit soft? I think it's because he has invested quite a bit in Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And they're kind of a bit of an asset for him. Here are these three Jewish men who are governing uh, the areas that are kind of inhabited by the Jewish exiles. Uh, And there's a sense in which they're keeping this kind of uh, minority group that isn't really assimilating properly, they're keeping them under control. So Nebuchadnezzar, he's a bit reluctant to follow through on killing them. Uh, But notice the end of verse 15. And Nebuchadnezzar says, if they are thrown into the blazing furnace then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? See, if you read Daniel chapter 2, it really did seem like uh, it was pretty clear that Daniel and his God were more powerful than Nebuchadnezzar and his gods. 
Right? It was Daniel's God who was able to reveal the mystery of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And yet, what does Nebuchadnezzar remember? He remembers Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. He remembers when he and his armies besieged Jerusalem and conquered their king and took the sacred articles from the temple in Jerusalem. In his mind, he's convinced that he and his gods are more powerful than Israel and their God. So he says, if you're thrown into the furnace, who could possibly rescue you from the power of my hand? I've demonstrated that my hand is already more powerful than your gods. But notice verses 16 to 18. As Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego are unmoved. Are they resolved to remain faithful to their God? Because they know that in the end, whether they live or die, ultimately their God will deliver them. Verse 16, they will reply to the king pretty boldly, isn't it? Verse 16, King Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Where does that sort of boldness come from? I reckon it comes from understanding that even though uh, in the kind of zoomed in lens, Nebuchadnezzar holds their lives in the palm of his hand. His hand is powerful in a sense, in the short term, in the the zoomed in lens. Uh, But from the zoomed out lens, in the big picture, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego know that their lives are in the loving and powerful hands of their God. Uh, They know, you can read the start of Daniel chapter 12. They know that in the end, whether they live or die, their God will raise them up with his people on the last day to live with him and his people forever. So Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego feel no pressure to defend themselves to King Nebuchadnezzar. And they know that in the end they're accountable to God alone. They don't need to justify themselves, they don't need to kind of trot out their arguments. That's pretty liberating, isn't it? That's part of being a Christian, is knowing that the verdict that matters most on your life, the opinion that matters most, is the opinion of your loving Heavenly Father. And his verdict on your life, if you have put your faith in Jesus, is that you are loved and forgiven and accepted and welcomed into his family as his child. So if the God of heaven and earth says that about you, if that's his opinion about you, then what would you care about anyone else's opinion? That's what Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, that's a bit of what they're feeling. We don't need to defend ourselves to you because we know who our God is. Uh, in verse 17 we see that they're confident that their God will deliver them who is able to deliver them notice verse 17 our translation says uh, if they are uh, uh, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace uh, the God that we serve is able to deliver us uh, and uh, he will deliver us from it uh, your majesty's, uh, sorry, will deliver us from your majesty's hand. So they've got no doubt that their God is able to deliver them. Uh, the blazing furnace will be no obstacle for their God. Uh, but unlike, I think, our NIV translation, I really critique translations, but I'm not sure that they actually are sure that their God will deliver them. That's what ours says, doesn't it? He, he's able to save us and he will save us. 
But I don't think that's what they're saying. Oh, I think that I'm no sort of expert on Aramaic. If you want to chat about Aramaic, which was the original language here, you can talk to Adam Humphreys after. Uh, but the experts tell me that this phrase can also be translated as he may deliver them. And I think that fits the context a bit better here. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego are saying, we're absolutely confident that our God is able to deliver us, uh, but we're not sure if he will. Right? Because how are we supposed to know the mind of God, the will of God in this situation? I think that fits uh, the, the context of verse 18. Either way, they're saying we're going to remain faithful to God whether we live or die in the furnace. Notice verse 18 says, but even if he doesn't, that is, even if he doesn't deliver us, they're not sure if they'll be delivered. Uh, but we want you to know, Nebuchadnezzar, your majesty, uh, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. It was Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Maybe you could uh, flick back to Daniel chapter 1 later on. But you remember that they're members of the royal family of the king. Members of the nobility, they kind of grew up in and around the king's courts. Uh, they would have been schooled in, this, in the Old Testament scriptures. So what did they know? One of the things they knew was that in the past, God had worked an incredible deliverance. What had God done? He delivered his people from the powerful hand of another superpower ruler, the powerful hand of Pharaoh. So they had no fear about the powerful hand of Nebuchadnezzar. They knew that their God was able to deliver them. And they just weren't sure whether he would choose to deliver them. Now, there are a bunch of applications for us here as we think about uh, applying this to, I guess, to our own trials and sufferings in life. For example, I guess I could share, I guess, about myself. Uh, I am absolutely confident uh, that my God is able to deliver me from losing my eyesight. He's able to do that. God made my body. He made my eyes. He understands the degenerative eye condition that I have better than the most sophisticated ophthalmologist in the world. He could heal my eyes in a moment. He's able to do that. But I'm not sure if he will. He might deliver me. He might not. At the moment, it seems like his, uh, his will might be uh, for me to grow more like Jesus through losing my eyesight for me to learn to accept my weaknesses and limitations and depend more on him and on others, and to understand that his power is at work in my weakness. It seems like that might be his will, but I'm, I don't know. But either way, what are we encouraged to resolve? We're encouraged to resolve, and by God's grace, I'm pretty determined to remain faithful to God. And to not bow down and give my life to serving other gods, but to give my life to serving the one true God. Because I know that in the end, whether I lose my eyesight or not, or get cancer or not, or die of COVID or not, or live or not, in the end, what's going to happen? My God's going to deliver me. He's going to raise me up to live with him and his people forever. Now, you think about the, 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 any trial or suffering in your own life, be in no doubt that your God is able to deliver you, but you don't know if he will. But one day he will deliver you. The resurrection of Jesus assures you of that. The resurrection of Jesus who suffered and died and yet was made completely whole, 
That, that assures us. That gives us confidence uh, that one day our God will deliver us. Anyway, uh, let's keep going. Uh, so in verses 19 to 23, you know, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, they say, we're not going to worship the image, Nebuchadnezzar, so they are thrown into the fiery furnace. Again, Nebuchadnezzar's furious with them in verse 19. Uh, his attitude towards them changed, which is an interesting expression. It's actually the image of his face towards them changed. So you kind of think, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's being, you know, he's trying to be calm, trying to be peaceful, trying to negotiate about them worshipping the image. Then they double down and say, we're not going to do it. Uh, and so his face, you know, he... The capillaries go up, you know, the hackles go up. Like, he, he just gets really angry. The image of his face changes. And, and like someone who's kind of a pretty impulsive tyrant, notice what he says. Uh, he says, heat the furnace seven times hotter than it's ever been heated before. Now, I don't know whether that's possible. I don't know if they had thermometers in, in kind of ancient Babylon. I suspect not. But what's Nebuchadnezzar saying? He's saying, I want these three men to really suffer. Get the heat of the furnace up to maximum intensity. And I don't want them to escape the suffering. So notice he gets uh, some of his strongest soldiers to bind them up as firmly as they can. Uh, they do it so quickly. Notice that their clothes are left on. Uh, maybe that's just because it's so urgent, Nebuchadnezzar's pressuring, pressuring them. Uh, maybe it's also because their clothes were quite flammable. I don't know. I'm not an expert on kind of furnace execution, but you can chase that up later on. Anyway, uh, and in verses 22 and 23, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, you see, he's put so much pressure on the soldiers that they're not taking proper precautions. They're feeling so frazzled about the need to get these three Jewish men into the furnace uh, that they kind of find themselves at the entrance to the furnace and they're absolutely, they're incinerated. They're burnt. The furnace is so hot. So what hope is there for Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego who fall right into the middle of the furnace? Right? They're not just standing at the door. It seems that there's no hope uh, unless God miraculously intervenes which is what he does in verses 24 to 27. Look at verse 24. The king uh, leapt to his feet in amazement and he asked his advisers, uh, weren't there three men uh, that we tied up and put into the furnace, into the fire? Uh, they replied, certainly, your majesty. I don't know how these things were set up, actually, but obviously Nebuchadnezzar had a clear view into the furnace uh, it's not like he sent these three Jewish men away and kind of wanted to forget about it. No, he wanted to check that they really did die. He was watching the furnace closely. And then he was kind of doing his maths, you know, counting. He wanted to double check, hey, well, were there only three? Uh, because look in verse 25. Look, I see four men, four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. Uh, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Well, it, I mean, it, it's clearly a miracle. Right? How is it possible for Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego to get out of their bindings and to be just walking around in the fire completely unharmed by it? It's possible because of that fourth figure in the furnace. Now, some people are, are really confident that this fourth figure isn't just 
one like the son of the gods, but it is the son of God. You know, they say, well, this is definitely Jesus. You know, before he took on flesh, he was the eternal son of God, and here he kind of pops down into the furnace to rescue Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And of course, Jesus could have done that, uh, but I don't think that's what's going on here. You'll see in verse 28 that Nebuchadnezzar uh, refers to this heavenly figure uh, as an angel. And throughout the Old Testament, generally speaking, one like a son of the gods uh, is an angel. Now we're seeing a bit. Of course, this points us towards Jesus. But I'm not confident that it's Jesus here in the furnace. Uh, but the point is that the God of heaven and earth has sent a deliverer to rescue his people from the fiery furnace. Oh, so look in verse 26, Nebuchadnezzar uh, wants a closer look, he approaches the furnace when he's in earshot of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, I imagine the fire was pretty loud, he calls out to him, he calls out to them, come out, servants of the Most High God. Notice that phrase, servants of the Most High God. Now, it doesn't tell us that at this point Nebuchadnezzar has become a Christian, that he's come to a personal faith in the God of Israel. But it does tell us that among all the gods that he believed in, he believed in a whole bunch of gods, he now considered the God of Israel to be the greatest of those gods, the, the most high God. So that's interesting. Let's watch how Nebuchadnezzar's kind of spiritual journey unfolds uh, next week too. So the, the, the Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego come out. Uh, verse 27, the Babylonian officials gather around to examine them. And what do they discover? They discover that it's like they haven't even been in the fire at all. Notice the, the descriptions. What does it say? Uh, the fire hadn't harmed their bodies. It's literally, the, the fire had no power over their body at all. And not a hair on their head was singed. Uh, they examined their clothes. There wasn't one scorch mark on their clothes. They even had a sniff. You know, they didn't even smell of smoke. that God had sent a heavenly deliverer to deliver his people from the fiery furnace and that deliverance was so comprehensive, so complete that it was like the fires of Nebuchadnezzar's judgment hadn't even touched them. They were completely free from the judgment. So in verses 28 to 30, Nebuchadnezzar honours the God of Israel, for he says no other God could possibly work a deliverance like this. In verse 28, he praises the God of Israel. But again, uh, yeah, so he praises the God of Israel. And then uh, he also praises Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, which is interesting, isn't it? He kind of admires their courage. But even in the face of intense pressure from Nebuchadnezzar, they didn't, they didn't bow the knee to his image. They remained faithful to their God. So in verse 29, Nebuchadnezzar gives that decree. Uh, no one's allowed to say anything bad about Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego's God. Or else, what will happen? They'll meet the same fate as the wise men of Babylon in chapter 2. You remember the wise men of Babylon? Nebuchadnezzar said, if you guys don't tell me what my dream is and what it means, you'll be cut to pieces and your houses will become piles of rubble. Complete dismemberment, complete destruction of their homes. Like, it's pretty intense, isn't it? And in here, incredibly, Nebuchadnezzar is saying the same fate 
Uh, that, the same fate will happen for anyone who says anything bad about the God of Israel. And so the passage finishes again, like chapter 2, with Nebuchadnezzar, in a sense, humbling himself and lifting up some of the people of God. He promotes Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. So the big idea of Daniel chapter 3, what is it? God delivers his people by sending his heavenly deliverer, uh, delivers his people from the fiery furnace by sending his heavenly deliverer so we should worship him alone. And of course, that's not the end of the story of the Bible, is it? Like we read this story on the other side of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. Uh, So as we read this story, we should read it in light of the ultimate deliverance that God has brought, Uh, from the ultimate fiery furnace. Uh, Of course, that ultimate deliverance from the ultimate furnace is the deliverance that God brought through the ultimate heavenly deliverer, through Christ, his son. Uh, You could write down Matthew chapter 13, verse 42. If you're a quick Bible flicker, you can flick across to Matthew chapter 13, verse 42. Uh, Jesus says some pretty confronting words here. It's not the only time he speaks about this sort of thing. Uh, but he, he's saying, everyone who opposes me, who refuses to follow me, who refuses to bow their knee before me, verse 42, will be thrown into the blazing furnace where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, this is the fiery furnace of God's judgment. It's pretty confronting. And unlike Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who didn't deserve to be thrown into the fiery furnace of Nebuchadnezzar's judgment, they didn't deserve that. They were innocent. They'd been faithful. Unlike them, the hard news of Christianity is that we all do deserve to be thrown into this blazing furnace of God's judgment because we haven't been faithful to God. We're more like the other people on the plane, bowing our knees before the idols of this world thinking that the gods of comfort and sex and money and power and security and control, thinking that these gods that we worship, that we serve, that we make every sacrifice for, thinking that these gods are able to deliver us and offer us more than the God who made us. We deserve to be thrown into the fiery furnace of God's judgment. That's the hard news. But the wonderful news is that God sent Christ his son, the ultimate heavenly deliverer, and that Christ God's son willingly threw himself into the fiery furnaces of God's judgment on the cross, bearing every last bit of God's judgment in our place. So that if we put our faith in him, what will it be like? It'll be like the fires of God's judgment haven't even touched us. Our bodies won't be harmed, our clothes won't be scorched, not a hair on our head will be singed. You won't even smell of smoke. Because in Christ, you'll be completely protected from the fiery judgment of God. It's incredible. So what should that move you to do? It should move you to worship Christ alone. Not to bow your knee before some man-made image that's been set up in our world but to bow your knee before the perfect image of God, the one who we're told is an exact representation of God's being, who reveals God to us, Jesus Christ, who was lifted up 
on a cross and then lifted up to his father's right hand. You want to worship something that's lifted up? Worship Jesus, the perfect image of God. That's who we should be bowing our knee to. And let me say, if you have seen uh, Jesus lifted up on the cross for your sins, if you've seen him being thrown into the fires of judgment willingly for your sins, uh, then you want to tell others about that. You want to share that with others. Uh, Recently, I've been reading a book called uh, The Only Plane in the Sky. It's a pretty harrowing book. Uh, It's about all the kind of detailed history of the events surrounding the 9-11 terrorist attacks. And one of the things that struck me as I've read the book uh, is the way in which survivors want to make sure that the heroic rescuers are honoured as they deserve. Like, as people were coming out of the World Trade Centre... There were firemen and policemen and security guards running into the fiery furnace to rescue more people. Many of them died. And what's their response? Their response is to be filled with gratitude and admiration for this great act of sacrifice. And they want these people to be lifted up and honoured as they deserve because of the great act of deliverance that they brought at the cost of their own life. That's what it's like if you really see Jesus lifted up on the cross for you. If you see the deliverance that he's brought from God's judgment, you want to see him lifted up, not just by you, but as Nebuchadnezzar says at the start of the chapter, peoples of every nation and language should worship this image that's been lifted up. When you understand what Jesus has done for you, you want people of every nation and tribe and language to worship him lifted up. Lifted up to the cross, lifted up to his Father's right hand. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for Daniel chapter 3. We thank you for what it teaches us uh, about your heart to rescue your people. Uh, We thank you that you have sent Christ, your son, uh, who is the ultimate deliverer sent from heaven to earth uh, to willingly, lovingly uh, throw himself into the fires of judgment uh, that we might be set free. Uh, We pray, Father, that we would... uh, Just be blown away afresh this day by the wonder of what Christ has done for us, uh, that we would be eager to lift him up and honour him alone uh, and see the nations of the world honour him as he deserves. Uh, We pray in his name. Amen.